turn to 1 Peter 4. Uh, we'll be in the second half of it. Well, if you guys have been here for a while, um, you'll know this. If, if not, uh, we'll catch you up to speed that we started our series um, in 1 Peter back in September uh, and have taken some breaks throughout that time. Um, but we're on Sermon 9 of 10 as, as we walk through 1 Peter. And so we'll be finishing that up next week um, on the 9th. We'll have an installment service uh, where, where Doug uh, will be uh, prayed over and, and kind of installed as lead pastor. And then the following week, uh, we're going to begin a new series as we walk through the Gospel of Mark. So I encourage you guys in the next few weeks, um, as this book comes to a close, I um, mean, as you start thinking towards the future, um, during your quiet times, I encourage you to start reading through the Gospel of Mark uh, to kind of prepare yourself to see, okay, what, what is this road that we're going to head down and how can we, we glorify God and, and come into a Sunday actually having read the passage and understanding, hey, this is where we're headed and this is what we're going to walk through this week. As I, as I process through the passage for this week, I kept having that word of, of mindset just come into my head and realizing that the reality is there's, there's something to be said about the mindset that we have about life and about various avenues of life. I mean, our culture is saturated with quotes and anecdotes about mindset. I feel like almost every time I'm watching TV and it's some kind of game show or, or a contestant gets on there and they ask, you know, what do you have to say to the people? And it's always, with the right mindset, you can achieve anything. Or others, everything begins inside your mind and with the right mindset, you will succeed. Or when the going gets tough, the tough get going. With the right mindset, you can turn your weakness into your strengths. Or as Teddy Roosevelt said, believe you can, and you are halfway there. See, I, w I wouldn't by any means go so far to say that anything is possible with the right mindset. But at the same time, I do believe that, that our mindset plays a vital role in this life plays a vital role in our outlook on life. And, and today's passage walks through what the mindset of a believer ought to be as we face suffering, as we face persecution. You see, Peter once again picks up the theme of suffering in the end of chapter 4. And if you've been with us for a while, you know that the word suffering is present all throughout the book of 1 Peter. The word suffering and its derivatives are actually used 21 different times in this book. And we recognize this book is only five chapters. He's saying over four times a chapter, suffering is talked about. As Peter engages with the people who are living in exile and, and are experiencing suffering, and then we know based on history that in a, that in a short amount of time, their suffering is actually going to increase as they have Nero overseeing them and killing Christians and lighting them on fire to have lamps in his garden. You see, suffering is a real thing. And Peter actually shares it, that suffering is going to be the experience of a Christian. Yet it's important to note on the front end as, as we walk through this, that as Peter speaks of suffering, as I speak of suffering today, it's in the specific context of suffering for Christ. Suffering for your Christian 
beliefs. And so as his letter starts to come to a close, as we start to kind of phase towards the end of 1 Peter, he has one last section, his final section to speak on suffering. It really addresses how we as Christians ought to have the right frame of mind when it comes to suffering, the right attitude, a mindset that is saturated in gospel truths and realities. So if you guys look in your branch notes or on the screen behind me, you'll see the outline for today. And it's, it's walking through having the right frame of mind, having the right attitude towards suffering. And he kind of lays out four, four different tools we can have as we approach the Christian life. First, he says, expect it. And second, he actually calls us to rejoice in it. And that's where we spend the bulk of our time walking through those verses. Thirdly, he's going he's gonna to call us to acknowledge the future. And I'll, I'll tell you, the future is judgment. And then fourth and lastly, he tells us to trust God, to trust our faithful, sovereign God. So let's begin in verse 12. I'm looking at the, the call, the, the frame of mind we ought to have to be one to expect suffering. He says, beloved... Which again, that beloved is actually kind of shifting and saying, okay, hey, we're going we're gonna to readdress something. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. See, right off the bat, Peter tells us that suffering, these fiery trials, shouldn't be something to be surprised about, but should be something to be expected. Most commentators say that these fiery trials uh, realistically relate to like suffering insults to being reviled and ostracized from the community. Peter says this, this shouldn't be a strange reality for the Christian. Rather, we should expect it. And the reality is I think if, if we look at our life, if, if we are a Christian in Oregon State, I think you could even start to feel that ostracization that we experience is getting pushed out to the fringes. Yet though this is a constant theme in the book, I think it often runs counter to our modern sensibilities. You see, for most of us, suffering is something that we try to avoid at all costs. I mean, we go out of our way to avoid potential suffering. I mean, some of us, we never actually start working out because we recognize that it's going to hurt a lot before it actually starts to feel better. Or we don't ask somebody on a date because we're worried they might say no. And that fear of rejection is too much. So I'm just like, I don't know, I'm good. If she comes and talks to me, that's great, but I'll just wait. Or we change our major because the one we're in is too difficult and we fear not being able to succeed or pass our classes. Or we don't tell our friends and family about Jesus because we don't want our relationship with him to be weird or different. He said, I think daily we make decisions to, to avoid suffering. And yet Peter just comes out and says, as a Christian, expect trials, expect suffering because they will come. And, and if we look at the gospel, 
we see that. We see that evil and sin targeted the only perfect person to ever live, Jesus Christ. And therefore, as followers of the way of Christ, we shouldn't be surprised when we find ourselves in the same circumstances. Not only that, this idea is not new. I mean, we see the whole New Testament, this, the sayings of Jesus are saturated with this. In Matthew 10, he says, this is Jesus, you will be hated for my namesake. In John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Loved by Christ and hated by the world. That's what a Christian is called into. You see, but Peter's language also encourages the believer to recognize that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of these trials, it's not a sign that, that God has abandoned you or is not loving you. His acknowledgement that this is part of the Christian life is actually showing that this is part of, of God's plan. We'll even see in verse 19, he says, God's will and suffering actually go hand in hand. Many of us potentially think that when we're suffering as Christians, we actually feel like God has abandoned us, that, that he's left us. We kind of cry out, where, where are you? I'm hurting, I'm in pain, and you seem nowhere to be found. Yet Peter says he, he, he's here. And we can find comfort in that. See, rather, the, these tests that he speaks of are actually purifying experiences. Is that me? We good? You see, Peter's, Peter's words actually remind us and push us back to the first chapter. Where in verses 6 and 7, he says, You have been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes by fire, can be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because he's saying, yes, we ought to expect these trials. And, and, and God's not absent in them. He's actually purifying his people in the midst of them. Don't run from them, but actually embrace them. And we see over the next few verses, he, he shares with us and shows us, hey, why ought we to embrace them? Because we can actually rejoice in our trials. If we're honest, when we think of suffering or persecution, and if I were to be like, hey, give some, throw some words out that you associate with that, I would assume the word rejoice would not be one of the like, first words somebody would throw out there. And yet that's the call we receive in Scripture. I mean, Paul in Romans says we rejoice in suffering. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And then here in Peter, but rejoice, rejoice. See, the Christian faith is one that lives in intention of, of Joy coexisting with suffering. And, and Peter shares with us in these verses, I think, three ways in which we can find reason to rejoice. 
It says rejoice because you share in Christ's suffering. Rejoice because you are blessed by the Spirit's presence and rejoice because you glorify God. So chapter, I mean, verse 13 shares with us that we can rejoice because we share in Christ's suffering. 13 says, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You see, we suffer because we have an allegiance to Christ. We share in Christ's suffering. And Peter says that it's that sharing in his suffering that actually leads to joy leads to rejoicing. Again, he's not saying that we should rejoice just in suffering for the sake of suffering. It's not a, oh yeah, insult me some more, abuse me, and hate me in the name of Christ. It's not a yes, but rather he's saying that we should rejoice in suffering because as we suffer as Christians, we're actually following the steps of Christ. What Christ said, that we are to carry our cross daily. And Peter's saying, this this is what it looks like to carry the cross. It might be heavy some days, but ultimately you're carrying the cross of Christ, and therefore it's worth it. You see, suffering for Christ gives us a small glimpse of what Christ went through. The suffering Christ endured that we may be brought into the family of God. Christian suffering should should elevate our love and appreciation and thankfulness for God and what he did for us. The beauty of the gospel message. I mean, I often think of the apostles in Acts 5 that actually rejoice in their suffering because they say we were counted worthy of suffering for the name of Christ. See, Paul tells us to rejoice in our suffering, and yet he points to the future. Rejoice in our suffering now, that we may rejoice when Jesus returns in his glory. As we suffer with Christ, so we will rise with Christ. The present suffering is evidence of a future end-time deliverance which will bring believers ultimate joy as God's glory is revealed. He's ultimately saying, direct your gaze heavenward. As you look to the future, as you look to what you know is coming, what God has promised will come, you're able to endure the here and now. You're able to endure that suffering. And, and we see how this is true even in our own lives in, in various ways. I mean, I think of those that have, have run a marathon before. And they know that this, this training process is long and rigorous. Usually these training plans range somewhere between three to five months. At some point, you have to run at least 20 miles in that process to prepare for the 26. You change what you eat. You change your schedule. Because there's going to be times where you're having to run hours on end throughout your week. And yet you do it all for the sense of joy and accomplishment and crossing that finish line. Or for others, think of the process of of becoming a doctor. That it's school on school on school. 
You got to do your undergrad and then pass your MCAT, get into medical school and actually complete it. Pass more exams, do your residency where you don't sleep all the time for multiple years. And then if you want to specialize in something like Jared and Tegan are doing, it's, it's additional years on top of that. And yet they do it for the joy of being able to help and serve other people. It's looking to the future. Or any women that, that have been pregnant. You endure the morning sickness, the food aversions, stretch marks, peeing 15 times every night, never getting any sleep because you're uncomfortable, let alone the actual act of giving birth itself. Yet they, they go through all of that for the end result of having the child and the joy that that brings to hold them in their arms. See, Peter's saying, have eyes on the future, on the glory of God, because in that you can rejoice in the here and now. You can know it is worth it when you know what you are doing it for, who you are doing it for. You see, ultimately, these examples pale in comparison to the weight of glory when Christ returns. A commentator Emma, on 1 Peter, Karen Joby, says, The Christian who stands fast and suffers for the gospel is responding to an eternal reality that will outlast death and even history itself. You see, when we cling to his glory being revealed, we're clinging to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Knowing that Jesus will return and even meditating on that throughout our days, throughout our weeks, gives us the strength we need to, to endure hardships, to endure struggles. You see, because we have the word of God and because we believe it to be true, we know the end of this story. And it's the end that we cling to, knowing that joy is in the end so we can rejoice in the here and now. And secondly, he says we can rejoice because you are actually blessed by God's presence. Verse 14. If you are insulted, for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Again, this is the paradoxical nature of the Christian life. Insulted for Christ and blessed in Christ. Insulted by humans, blessed by God. I mean, which one do you want to take? Which one actually matters in the end? This echoes Christ in the Beatitudes where he says, blessed are those when others revile you and persecute me and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Again, this is not new. Jesus from the beginning is saying, blessed are those who endure suffering and insult for my name. So why is it a blessing to be insulted for the name of Christ? It's not that suffering is a blessing in and of itself, but suffering actually shows us that God, his spirit rests on us. 
When I think of the, this song we sang um, earlier today, they talked about our sins being on Christ's shoulders. And it's, it's a beautiful image to be, Christ bears our sins on his shoulders, and we, as Christ's followers, get the spirit of God to rest on our shoulders. What amazing reality and comfort it brings to his people. Again, the common thought with suffering is that God has abandoned you, that he's distant, closed his ears. And yet here we see Peter saying, that is not the case. For when you are insulted, you can actually realize that, that God himself, his spirit, sits upon the shoulders of his people. And I encourage you to let that truth sink in. Like God never leaves or forsakes you, but rather rests amongst you. See, we have been given the helper. We've been given the counselor. Language used in the New Testament to describe the spirit. I mean, what would a day look like if, if when we got up and, and looked in the mirror, we acknowledged and meditated that we have the spirit of God with us today? And as we walk to class, as we go to the workplace, as people are kind or rude to us, we recognize, hey, the spirit is with us. He is our comforter. We think of the boldness we would have, our confidence in the gospel, our confidence in our new identity, and actually our confidence to be bold. I mean, again, Jesus said, when, when they deliver you over, he's talking about persecution to come. Do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for you are to say what will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Think about that for comfort. That as we endure suffering, as we endure insult, we actually have the spirit to, to give us words, to counsel us and guide us in those moments. The Trinity resides within us through his spirit. And with the spirit of God, we can stand firm against the powers that prevail in this world, we can stand confidently in the armor of God, with God. And then for verse 15 feels like a little bit of an odd pause or hiatus as he's giving these encouragements. He then also wants to take a moment and remind us that not all suffering is beneficial for oneself, but not all suffering is actually Christian suffering. In a sense, he's saying not all suffering qualifies one for God's blessing and joy. But human beings will also suffer because of their evil. Verse 15 says, let none of us suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or even as a meddler. See, what's interesting is that the first three, murderer, thief, and evildoer, are all coupled together as one unit. And it's really Peter saying, I think we can all recognize, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, that those things are wrong. Yet he then goes a step further and has this other category. Say, hey, also, don't be a meddler. Don't be a busybody, somebody that's watching over 
one another's affairs in an annoying way. Which I think if we look at these four categories or these four, we probably realize that meddling is what is so prevalent in our, in our life, at least of these four. And he's saying, hey, don't do that. There's no value that comes from potential suffering that you will endure through that. Being inappropriately involved in another person's affairs, he's saying, what's, what's the worth in that? So don't, don't fall into these kinds of sufferings. He says, rather, if, if you are to suffer, suffer as a Christian. For he says, for this third reason, for rejoice because you glorify God. Verse 16 says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. He continues on this call to rejoice in the midst of suffering. And the ashamed Christian is actually the one who, who denies Christ or fails to preserve the faith. It's the one who is silent when we ought to speak up on behalf of Christ. It's the one who participates in the things that are not of God because they want to fit in, not be seen as different or strange. There's no place for the ashamed in God's kingdom. Once again, from the words of Jesus, from his very mouth, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. He's saying, don't be ashamed of the gospel, but actually rejoice that we bring glory to God by how we respond to suffering. We bring glory to God by, by confessing and, and praising his name, both publicly and privately. We live out our calling when we glorify God. I mean, the first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is what is the chief end of man? To which the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. See, we actually live this out. We embrace our chief end when we glorify God in the midst of suffering, when we hold the gospel up in the midst of suffering. See, we've sworn our allegiance to Christ so that whatever may come, we rejoice in him. In hard times, you can actually rejoice that God is being glorified through our lives. And that's an amazing truth to cling to. That if in the, in the midst uh, uh, of suffering, we can recognize that in these moments, God is getting glory. Like, how amazing is that? We join God in those moments to glorify his name. And then he, he continues on to share really the, the third reason, which is a, it's a heavy reality, but it's a beautiful reality. And that's to acknowledge the future. 
Or put another way, it's ultimately to know judgment is coming. In verses 17 and 18. Verse 17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Peter acknowledges all people will be judged. The righteous, the best of the best, we could say, and the worst of the worst will stand before God. No one gets out of that. And yet, Peter here actually says that the judgment is going to begin with the household of God. Judgment is going to begin with God's very people. And yet we find encouragement in this. Karen Joby says, the suffering that Peter's readers are experiencing is an integral part of God's eschatological, so in time, judgment, which all human beings must face, but because of their faith in Christ, they need not fear it. The judgment that God's people, the church, experience purifies them while on earth. So, so what he's doing is he's actually looking at the end and saying this suffering, some of the suffering that you're even experiencing now is judgment being done on you to purify you, to purify you for the end so that when you stand before God, he sees his son in you. As you suffer with Christ, so you will rise with Christ. You suffer with Christ, so you put on Christ. And so we can actually embrace this persecution because in it, we're actually getting the purification of judgment. Ultimately, Peter is saying that if those who are going to be saved are purified through these fiery trials and persecution, then the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel will be far greater. Ultimately, if Christian suffering looks bad now, just imagine what the outcome will be for those who disobey God and actually relish in it. To reiterate this point, Peter actually quotes Proverbs 11.31, and he says if the righteous, in verse 18, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Scarcely, you can, you can uh, define as with difficulty. So he's saying if the difficulty is the suffering that believers must endure in order to be saved, then the judgment of the ungodly and sinners must be horrific indeed. You see, for the, for the Christian, we, we can find hope in this. We can praise God that we have faith in Christ. Praise God that the only judgment we experience is the purifying kind here on earth. Praise God that we suffer for Christ here and now instead of suffering for eternity apart from Christ. You see, we're counted worthy of suffering for Christ and suffering with Christ. And we can actually rejoice in that. 
Yet the flip side is, if, if you're not a follower of Jesus, like I, I urge you to look at the lives of Christians in your life and those around the world and see how they're being treated. How oftentimes they're insulted and ridiculed for their faith and how they suffer. And this week I uh, was just thinking about Christians around the world and, and the suffering they endure. And here's a smattering of that. In Pakistan, to be a Christian means you're a second-class citizen, marginalized and persecuted. In North Korea, Christians are viewed as hostile to the community and are to be eradicated, literally erased. In Afghanistan, it's illegal and treason to be a Christian. And the exposed or caught Christian is to be put to death. In Somalia, Christians are high-value targets to be shot on sight. In Eritrea, Christians are being imprisoned in shipping containers with limited food and water. And in Iran, it is illegal to convert to Christianity or share the gospel. Doing so is a crime against national security. See, if this is what the Christian experiences here on earth, can't imagine what the judgment of the ungodly and the sinner looks like. And I don't, I don't say this as a, as a scare tactic if you're in this room and don't know Jesus. But I also want to acknowledge that it is a wake-up call because we need to acknowledge the reality of what is to come. Judgment day will come. There is no avoiding it whether that be this very day or 70 years from now, we all do meet our maker. And there'll be one of two responses that day. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Or I never knew you. Depart from me. And yet, yet by the grace of God, your time on this earth is not up. And by the grace of God, you are here this very morning in this room, getting to hear of God's judgment, but also getting to hear of God's mercy. That in a time like this, God still calls people to himself. That you can turn to the one who suffered for you. You see, Christ is the perfect son of God and the perfect son of man who came to this earth to die for you and me. For rebels against him. See, he loved us so much that he went to the cross, endured a life of suffering so that we could be brought into the kingdom of God. See, his blood was shed that we may have life and have it abundantly. And when Christ rose from the dead, he defeated death. So that we can stand one day with God in paradise. You see, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I urge you to reconsider. Because judgment is coming and God wants you 
to be his own. And I can tell you this community wants you to be part of this family. I'd love for you to come talk to me or Doug or one of our elders or even the people you came with that you know know Jesus. Because this is not a light matter. This is something to be taken seriously. Because judgment is coming. And then, and then Peter concludes this section in verse 19 with really a call for us to trust God. It says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. How do we have the right frame of mind towards suffering? We trust God. See, the word entrust actually correlates to this idea of making a deposit like you would in a bank. We place our life in the vault of God. Knowing that what is placed in God is secure and will never come back void. You see, the suffering that, that we endure is not outside of God's control. But rather, as this verse says, it is under God's will. He actually wills our suffering. But since he is a good God and a good father who cares for his children, we can actually trust him, even in the midst of suffering. The famous words of Paul. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. See, we trust God because as we embrace him, he is working for our good and for his glory. And I can't think of a better thing to embrace and trust. You see, for God is our faithful creator. The, the term creator for God is only used a few times in all of the New Testament. And this, this name emphasizes the sovereign nature of God, that he is in control of all things, the fact that he holds the world in his hand. He created all things and he controls all things. All things begin and end with him. And if our sovereign, eternal God has my soul, has your soul, what are we to fear in this life? What are we to be ashamed of when we have all the reason to rejoice that I am his and he is mine? See, this, this passage brings the Christian comfort. For we realize that in suffering, we're not being punished by God, but rather we're being purified. We realize that, that God is not absent he's ever present. We realize that we actually experience his glory and we give him glory. And we can find solace that as we look to the future, we know that we will join Christ in his glory when he returns. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for your word. 
God, we praise you for, for passages like this that give us comfort and hope in the midst of sometimes the brutal realities of what we as followers of Christ experience and endure. Dear God, we rejoice with, with all that we are that, that you have counted us worthy to suffer for you. Lord, we rejoice that you have called us to yourself and that where we were once rebels, we are now your children. And Lord God, I pray for you those this morning that do not know you. Lord God, I pray that you call them to yourself. Lord, I pray that they recognize the reality of what is to come and say, I, I want this Jesus. Though as we see in a passage like this, it's not gonna be an easy life to live. It's a worthy life to live. As we look to the future, Lord, may we be men and women that rejoice in the glory of God, both here on this earth, but also in the reality of what is to come as your son returns to make all things new and to reign forever. God, we praise you for yourself. We praise you for your love, for your judgment, and for your mercy. In your name, amen.